This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Gabe Habash, deputy reviews editor at Publishers Weekly, filling in for Mark Rotella this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Lindsay Hill about his incredible first novel, Sea of Hooks, and then PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald will celebrate Halloween with retrospective of horror comics. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Gabe, as uh, the person in charge of fiction for us, why don't you start us off with a look at our new fiction number one and number two? Uh, so this week, debuting at number one is uh, John Grisham's Sycamore Row, uh, with 140,000 copies sold. Wow. And um, John Grisham's always at the top of the list. Uh, I mean, he's been doing this for years. And uh, in our star review for Sycamore Row, we just said it's typical uh, Grisham, what you come to expect. We actually said his skill at making legal minutiae is uh, extremely commendable, and his gift at getting readers to care about his characters is, you know, typically excellent. So at number two is Donna Tart uh, with The Goldfinch, which is only her third novel. It actually feels like she's written a lot more books because she's been such a big name for so many years uh the secret history was i think 1992 mm-hmm. and this is only her third novel and um but the secret history was just sold yeah, and sold and sold. the secret history um sold over five million copies wow. her second book the little friend which came out in the late 90s or early 2000s actually i think it was around 2002 has also sold uh you know similarly well and you know she's continuing the trend with her third book this is a doorstopper of a book it's 800 pages and, uh, and PW's review was mixed. We said it was a pleasure to read, but um, with a little bit more economy to the brushstrokes, it could have been great. You know, I'm sure Donna Tart fans will love it, though. And then also uh, on the bestseller list, we have Wally Lamb's We Are Water from Harper, which debuts at number five. And um, this is Wally Lamb's, uh, you know, most famous from for She's Come Undone. It's his fifth novel, and it's uh, a take on race, class, sexuality, and art. It's set, lo- set mostly in Connecticut, and... We In our PW review, we said he excels uh, mainly at delivering unexpected blows to his characters, and he ratchets up the suspense all the way up to the final page. Well, so that's a lot of uh, exciting new fiction that's out this week. This is the time of year when you tend to get one blockbuster book after another. Yeah. Um, lots of lots of big books for the fall. Uh, on the nonfiction list, uh, those who remember me and Mark talking about Humans of New York, which was uh, awfully big, and uh, we interviewed Brandon Stanton. This week, it's not quite so big. Um, it's dropped down to number 22 on the hardcover list. But on the nonfiction list at number four is Charles Krauthammer's Things That Matter. Um, this is a, a 
essentially a collection of writings by Charles Krauthammer, who's obviously a, a columnist, uh, and he talks a lot about politics, government, uh, and this is uh, going to be a collection that's going to appeal to all of his newspaper fans, uh, as well as people who've maybe heard of him and want to check out his readings all his right. writings all in one place. And then the other big book uh, on our nonfiction list is Howard G. Buffett's 40 Chances. Now, if Buffett sounds like a familiar name, that's because he's Warren Buffett's son. And uh, you know, having a fair amount of money at his disposal, he decided, Howard G. Buffett decided to set out to help the most vulnerable people he could find, um, people who lack basic food security, people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And the idea of 40 chances uh, is that he was spending a lot of time with farmers learning about farming. Uh, He learned that farmers can expect to have about 40 growing seasons, essentially 40 Mm -hmm. productive years in your life. And so he sees each year of your your most productive adult years as another opportunity to change the world. Mm -hmm. And so this is uh, it's told in a series of of, literally 40 different stories uh, of people that he's encountered and things that he's learned as he's gone through uh, spending a lot of money on trying to make the world a better place. So that's uh, those are the big stories on the nonfiction list, and we'll see what next week will bring us. I'm Gabe Habash. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we'll talk with Lindsay Hill about how decades of writing poetry has prepared him to write his first novel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Gabe Habash. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Lindsay Hill on the line. He's the author of Sea of Hooks, which is a debut novel made up of a series of fragments uh, of Christopher Westall, his childhood in San Francisco, and his um, adulthood in Bhutan. Thank you very much for joining us, Lindsay. It's nice to have you on the show with us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. So it's hard to summarize a novel that's so much about form and style as well as plot and character. But for the sake of those folks who are listening who haven't read the book yet, uh, will you give it a shot? Yes. The book concerns the um, childhood of Christopher Westall growing up in San Francisco. And Christopher has some uh, learning style difficulties that lead him to interpret the world through a very different lens than the, the traditional or, or quote-unquote normal way of doing so. And in this, he begins to discover um, information and another way of ordering things that, that lead him to make some decisions and move through life in a very different way. He encounters a number of, of traumas and serious challenges, and eventually the, um, the information that he receives leads him to travel to Bhutan, uh, when he's 22, and the the story is is the convergence of his history um, up to that point with his discoveries in Bhutan and how those come together um, to generate uh, transformation in his life. You mentioned a little bit that, and I think we sort of have an idea of why you chose to go with the fragmented structure, but could you just talk a little bit about why you chose to do that? And, you know, I mean, there, there are obviously more conventional routes than doing the fragments, and there's a million options when you're writing a book, but uh, why you chose to go with the specifically, you know, paragraph-long uh, fragments to tell the story? Yeah, the, the, uh, first of all, it, it has to be said that that's the way the book arrived, so um, it arrived as, as short, individually titled 
um, what I was calling sections. And I ended up writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them um, over a period of many years. And the way that it ended up really working and why I chose to keep it that way was because the uh, one of the main themes of the book is how broken things can be brought back together into a whole. So first of all, there's the overarching theme of, of something that's in shards and fragments being uh, generated into a whole thing. So in a way, the, the form of the book um, mimics the theme of the book. But also, I was very in, intrigued by the way that the um, individual sections allowed me to insert things like dreams, small narratives, flashbacks, thoughts, dialogue, in, a, in an order that would, would have been very difficult to accommodate in a traditional uh, paragraph structure. So it, it both allowed me the freedom to um, bring the reader quickly from one frame to another and then back to another frame, and it, it also allowed me to express a thematic priority of the book in, in the form of the book itself. And this this book um, is your first novel, but you've written a number of uh, poetry collections. And uh, it took you 20 years, correct, to write it? Yes. The book was started in Bhutan in 1994, and it was finished um, this year. So basically 19 years, yes. Wow. Um, can you walk us through that timeline? You said that you wrote hundreds of these fragments over the, the period of this time. Did you... Uh, did all of them make the make it into the book, or was it a, a sort of practice of writing and rewriting and figuring out what to keep and what not to keep? How how did those twenty years pass? Well, they started with about eight hundred pages of journal entries, um, which were done manually uh, in this series of what I call B journals, which were Bhutan-related journals. I started the first one in Bhutan. And then um, I started, actually, uh, that went on until about 2000, 2001. <clears throat> then I actually started uh, typing and uh, word processing, and um, that generated about 750 pages of typed sections. And at that point, I realized that, that I had finally stumbled on section number one. Of the book. So basically, I discard, discarded the first 750 pages of work. Wow. All told, all told, there were about 5,100 of these sections, of which something over a thousand ended up in the book. So, so four fifths of the writing was was um, discarded. Is this similar at all to how you write poetry, or is that a totally different process? It actually is a very similar process. But my last two poetry books are both book-length poems. So I've been more and more interested in longer and longer forms. The, the process is to just write and write and write. And as long as there's material burbling forth, which I think is the experience with when you're really writing, and, you're, and, and writing for me is a very joyful um, experience, the writing is really coming. It's, so it's not sitting down every day and disciplining myself to write. It's really just being there and being being in a continuous relationship with writing. So I would write maybe a hundred pages of work, 
And then when, when, when that source seems to exhaust itself, then after a period of months, I'll turn around and relook at the material and see if there's anything that I can edit it into. The only issue with Sea of Hooks was it turned out to be 2,500 to 3,000 pages of material, mm-hmm. um, depending on the, on the font and the spacing. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. So it actually took, it took me three years working steadily just to edit it down to some form. So I, I really discovered what the work was in the process of editing it. But yeah, a lot of it was not good, not suited, and ended up on the cutting room floor. We did a Q&A, Lindsay and I, uh, a couple months back. So when we talked the last time, you mentioned that you quit your job in banking around the time that you started working on this book. Is that is that right? Yeah, it was 10 days after I got back from the trip to Bhutan that I left left my career. Over the, over the course of the you know, 19, 20 years that you spent from conception to publication what what like what what changed in your life and perspective because i'm sure you know your opinions and how you felt personally about the book and emotionally about the book you know changed a lot over the i mean that's two decades anybody's going to change in that broad scope of time so can you just talk a little bit about how you changed personally and how that affected uh the work itself well my life had to recenter itself back on writing so I had been, I had had a writing-centered life when I was young, much younger, and when I was in uh, an undergraduate. Um, and my first book of poetry came out when I was still studying at Bard, and I ended up in the investment banking business for all kinds of reasons, none of them particularly interesting. But I had to recenter my life. Um, I also was um, married, and uh, my wife and I are still married, and we had two kids. Um, so I had to manage somehow to bring my life back from a 20-year business career to a career, not, well, I wouldn't call it a career, but to, to the engagement with writing. And that took a long time, and that was a transformational process for me. Um, to be able to... to open up my listening so that I could hear the manuscript, hear the language, hear the themes, be attentive in that particular way was really very transformative because it, it, it completely recentered my ability to pay attention in, a, in that particular way. So the other thing that I would say, which was not exactly part of your question, um, is that I really learned that which should be no surprise, but the best way to, to, to um, write better is to write more. So um, I, I like to think that over that time of writing those hundreds and hundreds of pages, I, I began to just become a better writer through the act of just being willing to write and being happy to write. So that was also very transformative for me to, to, evolve as a writer 
Um, I have been reading your Q&A that you did with Gabe, which is fascinating. And you mentioned that while you were in Bhutan, uh, you learned about some Tibetan Buddhist teachings that uh, ended up being quite relevant to the book. And I think I'm hearing something of that also as you're talking about attentiveness, about opening yourself to the work and listening to the work. Are you willing to talk about that intersection a little bit? Sure, sure. And yes, yeah, so the the, um, the doctrine that I... I came across was called, um, it's been called many things, but uh, the way that, that it was presented was the name the Treasure Cycles. And this was um, uh, the, the great Buddhist saint, Guru Rinpoche, had spread treasures all across the, the Himalayan region. And specific spiritually evolved individuals called Tertans have been assigned over the course of centuries to recover these treasures. So I'm not a Tibetan Buddhist. Um, I have had a had a, a, a Buddhist practice, but um, the, the idea that sacred things are scattered in the landscape among us, and that a particular kind of attention can surface them, is a is a key theme in the book. For Christopher Westall, he sees those things in trash and garbage uh, blowing down the streets. He finds treasures there. As a kind of metaphysics, as a kind of way of being as a writer, I found it very exciting, the idea that, that the marvelous, the sacred, the wondrous is scattered among us in, in places and ways that we're not necessarily looking for it or suspecting it, but that if we can cultivate a kind of attention to it, these things will show themselves to us. And so hopefully that doesn't sound too new agey or you know, um, overly ungrounded, but this became a real experience for me in terms of working with this huge evolving manuscript that within this forest of language, there, there might be real treasures, nuggets, I don't want to be self-aggrandizing, but things that really stood out as powerful and important, and that I could cultivate a way of addressing the manuscript that would surface those and bring them forward and then bring them into relationship with one another. I hope I'm speaking at least to the question, Rose. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so you have all of these hundreds of fragments in the book, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you went about crafting each one and you know, if you have any specific ones that you remember being uh, particularly difficult or easy to write, or, you know, if you have any specific stories relating to um, some of the specific, specific fragments that are in the book. So most of the fragments in the book came fairly in, in fairly whole form. So it's very important for me to say that I was not attempting to edit them as I was writing them. What, what became, which is, you know, means that, of course, four out of five of them weren't worth keeping. Um, when the book began to show itself as a whole thing, and I started to build the book more consciously, I had to work really hard on many of the sections to bring them into the frame of the story and of the, of the imagistic and thematic um, through lines and threads. I had to work really hard on the on the um, section called edges, 
which um, uh, occurs pretty early in the book and basically describes Christopher's mother um, prior to her suicide as clinging to the edges of things and how the edges wouldn't hold for her. And it was a very difficult section to get right. Um, also, a section called, um, and he went about his days, which is more, I think, toward the middle, um, was a section that was very emotionally charged. And I needed to amp the language down so that the, the sort of simmering emotion underneath it could occur more in the reader and less on the page. So that's sort of a subtle jump to try to make. And I struggled with that section for a long time. It's a really simple, very short section. The ending was also quite challenging in terms of finding finding ways to work with the, with the sections, figuring out which sections could be brought to end the book and how to end the book. Um, that took a long time and quite a bit of work. And I did have some very generous and helpful assistance from Bruce McPherson, uh, the publisher and editor, uh, working through those issues. And you mentioned that you'd done some long-form poetry, that your last books of poetry were, were really book-length poems. Um, I, I realize that taxonomic questions are kind of a headache, but I'm curious as to what, for you, the difference is between a book-length poem and a poem-style book. Like, this is a very poetic novel, but I, I definitely, reading through it, I wouldn't call it a, a novel-length poem. It's clearly a novel, and yet somehow I, I, feel, I feel like the line there is very blurry, especially given your other work. So would you be willing to, to speak to that a little bit? Sure. The, you know, it's, a, it's one of these wonderful and interesting zones of, of discussion that, that have been, I think, fairly well plowed. But so I had to understand about myself, an indirect comment, I had to understand about myself that my last two book-length poems were actually narrative poems. <clears throat> I'd always um, thought of myself more as a lyric poet, focused on image and, and evoking things through rhythm um, and image. So I had, to, I had to come to grips with the underlying stories that were in my last two books of poems. So first of all, I think a narrative through line is an extremely important differentiator, and the importance of the narrative in carrying the weight of the work in a novel is much, much more pronounced, which I'm not saying anything necessarily revolutionary or interesting, but so just the story, the focus on having a story that the reader can follow and be interested in. Another key and, and very important thing, though, is how image and, and lyrical language, the sort of concussive, chewy, rhythmic language that I find to be so irresistible, can, can work to infuse the story with a kind of life and a kind of emotionally charged undercurrent, um, where other kinds, which is other kinds, not, very, not being very specific, but other kinds of narrative writing tend to be not in any way less good, but just less um, less language focused, where the language itself is is a subject matter of the work. 
So I would say that, that in lyric poetry and even in narrative poetry, the language and the image carry the ball. And in, uh, in the novel, it's really the narrative that is doing the heavy lifting, but it's allowing the, the lyric to um, be more impactful because of its connection with the story. I guess the, the question that I really have is for you to commit so much time to a project um, and stay focused on it. Um, there has to be some sort of central driving force that keeps you committed to it, that keeps you from putting it aside, that that it's essential, like the centrally driving force of why you want somebody to read it and why you want to want to write it. And I was just wondering why you wrote the book and what that reason was for you to commit so much, such an inordinate amount of time to the book. Well, I know it may sound like a sort of um, flip response, and I don't mean it to. I actually wrote as little as possible. Um, I was, it, I equated, I equate the experience with a surfer who's out in the waves on her board or his board and a wave comes along and it turns out to be a really big wave and then it turns out to be an amazingly big wave and you just hop on and you hope against hope that you have the skill and the agility to stay with it. My experience of writing this book was that I was swept up by the book. I was getting up, as I think I mentioned in our last conversation, I was being pushed out of bed in the middle of the night to go write this. And, and I really can't overstate the degree to which I was running to keep up with writing this book. At no point during the writing of the book did I give any thought that it would ever be published or publishable or of interest to a reader, but it was a burning urgency to me to write it. And when, when I would sit, if I sat down and that, that urgency wasn't there, I just got up and went and did something else. So I said to a friend the other day, I, I, only, went to the, I only went to the fair when the fair was open. You know, so I, I Maybe I'm not answering Gabe very well, but I was driven to write the book, and I didn't write it for anyone to read. But, but I will say, and I think I said it to you in an earlier conversation, I edited it to be read. So at the point when I was editing it, I really wanted it to make it as clear as possible and to let the work be heard as, as you know, to, to serve as well as I could in my editing. We've been talking with Lindsay Hill. You can find his book, Sea of Hooks, in stores right now. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you both. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Gabe Habash, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald will give us a Halloween retrospective of horror comics from the pulps to the present day. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald is going to tell us about classic and modern horror comics just for Halloween. Thank uh, you, Heidi. Hey, no problem, Rose. I'm happy to be here on this spooky day. Uh, Thinking about spooky comics. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, <laughs> tell me what's up. Well, uh, of course, horror comics have a huge history uh, in the medium. And probably the most infamous is the EC comics, which came out in the 50s. Right. Um, in fact, they were so uh, 
uh, horrible that they almost destroyed the comics medium but but actually <laughs> not really but uh they were published in the 50s uh things like vault of horror and um tales Ju- from the crypt tales from the crypt probably mm-hmm. the most famous one uh and with great artists like frank rosetta's early work was in there uh graham Ingalls, johnny craig um most of them written by a, a man named al feldstein who's actually still alive and still goes to comic shows and i think he's in his, well into his 80s now but um if you ever get a chance to meet him, I, I, they're truly inspiring, I think. But uh, anyway, they, they, they featured such things as severed heads. And, um, you know, one of the most famous stories of all was called Taint the Meat, It's the Humanity, which featured a baseball game being played with the diamond laid out with human entrails. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, even in the 50s, people had these weird ideas. Um, and they were very successful, but part of a huge wave of horror comics. Uh, that was the most popular genre at the time. And as part of uh, the 50s version of the nanny state, um, uh, the psychiatrist Frederick Wortham said that these were creating juvenile delinquents, uh, even though there really wasn't any evidence. And uh, actually, his papers have been studied now, and it's found out there really was no evidence. He was totally kind of uh, fudging the whole thing. But uh, the Senate had hearings to see how bad these comics were. Um, famously, one of the senators, I think it was Estes Kefauver, held up the comic with the severed head on it and said, you know, do you think, or, or actually it was a comic with women with giant um, giant uh, assets on the, <laughs> on, the, on the cover and said, you know, do you think kids should see that? And and I, I think the publisher's answer was something like, you know, well, at least she's not naked. Or I mean, he, he wasn't very well... He wasn't, uh, you know, p- comics purists who hear this, by the way, are going to pillory me because I, I, I don't have the exact um, exact quote there. But, uh, yeah, he wasn't exactly equipped to... No, not really prepared for a congressional no, hearing. No, no, But uh, the comics uh, have survived. I mean, obviously, everyone who was 10 years old in the 50s loved them uh, and has written about them extensively. And actually, there's a whole bunch of reprints of them coming out right now. Uh, Dark Horse Comics has kind of an facsimile editions. Uh, coming out and uh, Fantagraphics is reprinting them by artists so they have like uh, issues with of for instance Graham Ingalls uh, Harvey Kurtzman probably the most famous one mm-hmm. um, you know uh, Johnny Craig but uh, they are coming out uh, now so you can totally get your horror on with EC Comics um, from the 50s till now and now they're really not so shocking <laughs> if you watch uh, watch American Horror Story or uh, the anything actually <laughs> right, or, or, or the Saw movies yeah, or, or reality TV right not not so shocking or the evening right. news yes exactly so um, yeah those are probably the most famous horror comics um, one of my favorite veins of horror is the Japanese manga tradition they have really 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 disturbing very upsetting uh, psychological horror. Um, Probably the best known are um, Junjo Ito. He has a a whole bunch. He had some comics come out from Dark Horse a few years ago. I'm sure you can still get those. Um, Another is uh, Uzumaki, whose best known work kind of centers on spirals and it spirals into horror. Uh, They just put out this week a one-volume collection of some of his best horror comics. So if you're near the comic shop, I highly recommend. It's published by Viz. Um, Uzumaki. Um, I'm surprised that Japanese horror comics aren't more popular here, to be honest, because they're incredibly transgressive. And uh, I mean, they, you know, you just mentioned Saw. I'm not into torture horror at all, but um, you know, the 
<laughs> the transformations that take place in these Japanese comics are mm-hmm. very startling, and um, and that's part of a tradition in Japanese mm-hmm. art going back hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, actually, even some of the earliest manga, there was just another one that was reprinted recently called um, uh, Panorama Island. Uh, actually, I guess that is more recent from the 70s. But there was a, an older manga from the 30s that's just been reprinted by Picture Box that you can see that you know even in times that we consider a little bit more. Uh, cautious, uh, this influence was definitely in manga. So, I mean, anyone who likes really amazing horror comics should totally look into manga, even if you've never looked into it before. I think the stories are very approachable. Um, they don't have as many of the kind of weird uh, shoujo or shonen kind of uh, signifiers that a lot of uh, Occidental readers are put, turned off by. Um, I think they're very, very approachable, even if you're not a manga regular. Mm-hmm. And what else is uh, being done with the genre today? Because I feel like on the book side, this is what I cover as a reviews editor, I feel like horror's been in a little bit of a slump. And it's maybe coming out of it now, but most of the interesting work is being done with really micro presses, mm-hmm. the, yeah. very much on the on the fringes of publishing. So is that true for comics too? Um, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, even like, you know, the Japanese stuff that I just mentioned, which is very popular there, is considered very fringy here. Um, uh, so one of the most interesting things, uh, I think when you and I talked about this is from EC to EC, because uh, one of the hottest horror cartoonists right now is Emily Carroll, and uh, she's based in the Pacific Northwest. She's just moved around, so I, I'm not going to say the city, but she, every Halloween, does a digital comic on the web that takes the physical constraints of the browser as part of the storytelling and like you might click on something and you know click on some some element and a part of the story comes up or you have to scroll and suddenly there's a a uh, a surprise um and her stuff is incredibly creepy and really very groundbreaking i think she also does video games um she's also in print but um her electronic uh, digital storytelling is really amazing, and um, I think that's really some of the most groundbreaking stuff being done. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I'm uh, not as familiar with the the uh, non-picture horror, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously, uh, but it, it 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 just does seem in comics right now. I mean, of course, Tumblr. I mean, is a huge source of imagery. Um, you say, of course, but that hadn't even occurred to me. I, I haven't, I haven't spent much time on Tumblr. Oh, see? I mean, I know of it. As, <laughs> I know it's a very image-centric right. medium, uh, but that makes sense now that you say. Of course, it. of yeah. course, and I mean, but it's amazing that uh, there is just so much material that you know, uh, you and I can both only cover tiny fragments. It's we true. can only cover our own little channel of it, and not really have time to, to, uh, to go into the, uh, to the, to the other channels. But um, you know, on Tumblr, you find huge, huge you know, groundbreaking, something new every day. I mean, it's impossible to keep up with. So um, I don't think anybody's found the uh, BuzzFeed for Tumblr yet, unless BuzzFeed is one big Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) Quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just some other cartoonists who I like um, are are Charles Burns, Black Hole, one of the greatest horror comics of all times. Um, It's readily available. Um, Richard Sala, he has a whole... um, bookshelf of really great books and uh, another one that I'm always plugging but uh, on this day it's like if you like true life or uh, Rick Geary does these true life murder books where he, he recreates the crimes in beautiful 
uh, Victorian kind of detail. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are kind of old grandmasters, I'd call them. Mm-hmm. But uh, try to think of some some of the newer cartoonists that are uh, just uh, blowing. I mean, there there's, there's definitely a kind of... Uh, I think indie comics right now have more of what I call a cute core focus. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of that, that you know, kind of Adventure Time look to it, I would say. Um, so I think horror hasn't quite broken out as much, but um, but there is there are quite a few people who are uh, exploring their own visions of it. So, and and you seem to be talking mostly about the visual side of things. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've noticed a couple of uh, horror authors making the jump into writing comics mm-hmm. as well. Are are you seeing that too? Or um, I yeah. want to say that Christopher Golden's yeah. Done some. Well, he's been around for quite a while doing yeah. comics. Yeah, definitely. I know with him Mike and, Mignola. Yeah, with yeah. Mike Mignola, they've mm-hmm. they've um, yeah, a few people have. I think it's more common with mystery writers, um, but there have been quite a few horror writers who dabbled with uh, anthologies over the years. Mm-hmm. So um, I haven't really. I don't. I don't follow the horror like i say i don't like torture porn so i right. haven't really gotten into a lot of the contemporary horror movies um or, or um you know larger brands i guess you could say but um I, yeah i i think it's uh, i think right actually there's more <laughs> musicians getting into it you know uh rob that's Z- interesting well rob zombie's always launching some kind of comics uh a thing you know kiss is always doing comics Gene i didn't Simmons. know that that's yeah really interesting. and uh al al jorgensen of ministry right uh, i think yeah, who, we had just, him on the show just right you yeah. know well he's <laughs> and he's doing yeah. a comic that's what right. a small world it is really <laughs> <laughs> but you know he's doing his own comics so uh yeah mm-hmm. i think there's quite a few you know gerard way with my chemical romance he did uh some comics they're overtly horror but they certainly have a very supernatural aspect to them um i think i'm seeing a lot more kind of in the paranormal uh i was gonna ghosty kind mm-hmm. of investigatory there's yep. quite a few books like that out right now that seems to be a huge trend is you know everybody's got their their ghost meters out there you know listening <laughs> for uh ectoplasm so uh-huh yeah i mean one of it's debatable whether this is a way that horror survived or a thing that that diluted horror but certainly horror has been mingling with a lot of other genres in in fiction Mm -hmm. recently and so i was going to ask if that was also a trend in comics i mean you have horror plus romance you get paranormal romance you have horror plus mystery and you get urban fantasy and so forth well it's funny because you know you're you you're you're mentioning all these things uh i mean i guess you could say twilight horror in a way (laughs) for some and well sure it's it's feminist horror yeah right (laughs) Exactly. Um, But, you know, the vampire genre, um, you know, kind of has horror roots. I mean, I think defining what it is 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 even more difficult, as you say, because there are so many, um, you know, blurred lines. Uh, So to use another pop culture reference. um, Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the big things that we just saw this week also was uh, The Return of the Sandman Mm -hmm. uh, by Neil Gaiman. And uh, which is, you know, again, kind of supernatural. But certainly there's some real horror. There's some very scary elements in there with the the Corinthian. I remember actually the first time I read Sandman, believe it or not, he gave me nightmares Uh, about the Corinthian. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. it's very... um, uh, very effective in that. So, um, you know, when he he's back in the first issue of Sandman uh, Overtures, the the kind of prequel comic that's out this week. So, um, uh, yeah, we're seeing some of the old old timers return, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for that roundup. It's All right. Good to have a sense of what's going on in that yeah. corner of the genre right. right now. Well, glad to be here, Rose. Thanks. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 